Welcome to the Financial Key Podcast with Ashley Lee. I'm a millennial money coach, but you can think of me as your financially savvy Alexa. Each episode, we will uncover and discuss the keys you need on your road to financial independence. I will connect you to the answers to the questions you have and even the ones you didn't think to ask. Debt, side hustles, entrepreneurship, real estate, and investing are all topics we will discuss here. So let's jump right in because you do not want to miss the keys we're dropping in today's episode. Welcome back, Wealth Builders, and welcome to the second season of the Financial Key Podcast. This is so crazy. I felt like I just launched this podcast like a week ago, but we are now in season two. Happy New Year. I did take a small break to enjoy the holidays, and y'all, I'm so glad I did. I actually ended up testing positive for COVID um, during the holidays, so that was Such a big surprise, but I'm feeling much better now. I feel like I have my energy back and I'm just happy to be back here recording another episode for you all. So before we jump into season two, I wanted to do just a quick recap of season one and all of the guests that joined us. So we kicked it off with Kofi and we talked about how student loans aren't good debt like they led us to believe Then we talked about the stock market mindset, the mindset you should have before you start investing with Ashley. Next, we talked all about money and marriage with Michael. Then Nika gave us all of the tea on side hustles and money hacks that we can use to slay our debt. Then we took it to church with Caleb and discussed faith, finances, and entrepreneurship. And then we wrapped up 2020 with Ashira and discussed all things taxes. And of course, I can't forget about Seasons 1 Freedom Friday guests, Edwig, Brandon and DJ, and Diana. The three of them combined paid off over $220,000 of debt. So that is so amazing. So I just want to say thank you to all of my Season 1 guests for sharing their stories. And again, thank you to all of you who have listened and just rocked with me through Season 1. And let's just go ahead and jump right into season two. So we have a very special guest today. We are speaking with Aaron Lowry, the author of Broke Millennial, the Broke Millennial series and BrokeMillennial.com. So her first book was Broke Millennial, Stop Scraping By and Get Your Financial Life Together. Her second book, Broke Millennial, Takes on Investing, A Beginner's Guide to Leveling Up Your Money. So her first book was named by Market Watch as one of the best money books of 2017. And her style is often described as refreshing and conversational. Erin has been featured in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and on CBS Sunday Morning, CNBC, and Cheddar, and a host of other media outlets. So today, we are discussing Erin's newest book, Broke Millennial Talks Money scripts, stories, and advice to navigate awkward financial conversations. And I know we have all been in awkward financial conversations, whether you're on a first date with someone and you're not sure, like, am I paying? Is he paying? Like, we've all been in those, like, awkward moments. So Aaron is here to give us all the tips that we need to get through them. And make sure you stick around to the end of the episode to learn how you can unlock the bonus chapter plus some other bonus goodies for her newest book. So without further ado, let's jump right into the episode. 
All right. Hey, Erin. Welcome to the show. Hi. Well, thank you for having me. I'm so glad you're here. We are kicking off season two with you. So before we get started, can you just tell everyone a little bit about yourself before we jump in? Well, I am Erin Lowry, author of the three-part now Broke Millennials series. And my goal is varied, but fundamentally, (laughs) I'm really just trying to help people, millennials specifically, but hey, Gen X, Gen Z, Boomer, whomever, Mm -hmm. to feel in control of their money. And really try to take out kind of that like preaching, the finger wagging, the like, don't buy your latte, whatever, insert cliche financial advice here, really Mm -hmm. trying to remove a lot of that and just make it a bit more fun and interesting and relatable. Excellent. Well, I have a personal story. I remember reading your first book. So this was about maybe two years ago. I had just started my debt-free journey and I actually picked up a part-time job at Barnes and Noble. So on my lunch breaks, we were allowed to like take books from the floor and like read it in the back. So I remember picking up Broke Millennial and like just reading through it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, she gets it. Cause I felt that same experience of other personal finance books that I was reading at the time. Cause I was just trying to get my bearings and with budgeting and paying off my debt. It felt like a lot of finger wagging, like you were mentioning. Um, but when I read yours, it has such a fresh approach and just a relatable approach. So I'm just having like a full circle moment of remembering being in that you know, break room at Barnes and Noble reading your book to now two years later, I'm debt free and now I'm interviewing you. So thank you so much for uh, joining me today. Well, thank you. And congrats. Way to be debt free. How does it feel? It feels amazing Um, just to be able to do it in the midst of the pandemic and everything that, um, you know, went on this year. I'm just so happy and I'm just glad to be on the other side of it and working towards saving and investing and all that stuff that you talk about in your books. Awesome. Yes. So like I mentioned earlier, you have just released your third book. So Broke Millennial Talks Money, Scripts, Stories, and Advice to Navigate Awkward Financial Conversations. So I would love to talk about that. And why did you feel like this book was necessary for your third book in the series? You know, it's funny when I was writing the epilogue for this book, I went back and read the epilogue of my very first book. And in that very first one, I made a reference at the end, like, yeah, and it's important to talk about money. And I feel like that was sort of laying the seeds for Mm -hmm. what I eventually was going to want to talk about. Because really the series kind of goes along the path of first, you got to get it together. And then book two is broke millennial takes on investing. And now, you know, we're getting our money working for us. We're growing that wealth. And I was like, what's third? Like a lot of people think, you know, buy the house, have the kid, like those traditional quote unquote milestones, Mm -hmm. neither of which I've done. So I wasn't going to write about it. (laughs) I'm a New York City renter. Thank you very much. I don't think it's throwing away my money. We can talk about that later. (laughs) And I started to think about the fact that for most of us, the big pain point truly is talking about money. Like even if your financial house is totally in order, you are doing the most, all of the things that you're supposed to be doing. You've got that gold star. Great. But if you can't talk about money with other people, particularly set financial boundaries with people in your life, money is always going to be a pain point. Mm -hmm. So that's what really inspired me to want to write this book. But then I was trying to figure out how to one approach the actual writing of it and to like explain it to people, because I kept saying like, it's about relationships and money. 
And people always think romantic relationships. Anytime you say that word, Mm -hmm. people think it's like your boyfriend, your husband, whatever. That's not this book. It's in there, but it's split up into four sections, work, family, friends, and romance. Because my big thought was I wanted to hit all the big areas of our life where we have to have these money conversations. And also we go in and out of times where those different sections are causing us potential financial stress. Mm-hmm. You know, Absolutely. before we hopped on this call or started, well, before we hit record, I was flippantly talking about weddings, mm-hmm. which when you read the book, anyone who reads it, you'll get the sense I'm not a big, big fan mm-hmm. of wedding season because <laughs> it takes all my money. It does. It does. <laughs> and really, I think like that's an, a one example where like sometimes that's a fight with in your friend life. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that's a fight with the family. Sometimes that's a fight with a romantic partner and heck it even takes up your vacation days. So that can become problematic at work. Like there's so many ways Mm -hmm. that all of this, just like money spreads out into every area of our life. And we have got to learn how to advocate for ourselves and also how to have like very nuanced and loving and compassionate conversations as well. Mm-hmm. And I love that. So how do you feel just as a whole and not to generalize millennials, how do you feel like they are handling these conversations? Are they just trying to avoid it at all costs? Or what do you think we're doing right now with these awkward conversations? I think it's a mix. I think some there are some ways that social media has actually been kind of helpful in that you can anonymously go on and be talking about your debt, your financial goals, you can find support systems without ever actually revealing your true identity and who you are. So if in your quote unquote real life, you can't find that support, you can go find it elsewhere, mm-hmm. which is beautiful. But then we look at something like social media and they talk a lot about how our generation is all about experiences and that's where we spend our money. And mm-hmm. you know, we don't showboat the way our parents did. Oh yes, we do. We just showboat on Instagram, like, (laughs) look at this vacation, look at this restaurant, look at this concert. Mm -hmm. Sure. It's experiential, but there's still now actually a way for us to be like flexing for the grim as the kids say. (laughs) (laughs) Do they say that? It feels like an old person. I mean, we're the same age. I don't know what they say. (laughs) (laughs) My husband's a high school teacher. So that's the only way I hear like current slang. Okay. Yeah. I just like call my younger cousins. I'm like, so like, what are the dances now? What are we saying? Like, I just need to know. Oh, I'm so out with the dances. (laughs) I am like not on TikTok. So that super ages me. Yeah. Same. But (laughs) yeah. Which also proves that millennials are getting older. I'm so tired of the millennial cliches and stereotypes. Like we are entering our forties. I'm not yet, but half the generation is. Mm -hmm. Sidebar. (laughs) So I, I do think that there are elements of, you know, people are more open with saying like, I have student loans. That's a more socially acceptable thing to say now than even a decade ago. Mm -hmm. But I don't know many people who cop to like credit card debt. And I think we still have so much judgment wrapped up in how we talk about money, how we relate to money. And truly what I find most fascinating is it's not the people close to you that you are comfortable having this conversation with. Hmm. It's the stranger next to you on the airplane. It is the person waiting online with you to buy something who makes a comment about money and you'd be like, oh, I can engage with this person and be like, I have X amount of credit card debt, but your best friend probably isn't going to know. Because fundamentally it comes down to fearing judgment and you don't care what a stranger thinks, but you do care what your loved ones think. 
And that's absolutely true. Because I know with the beginning of my debt-free journey, it started off anonymously online. And like, I had no problem saying like, I haven't had a job in six months. I, you know, was laid off my job. I'm like looking for a job. I'm putting all of my living expenses on credit cards. So I had no problem doing that on Instagram. But outside of Instagram, I was still like trying to front like I had it all together in front of my friends and like accepting all of these brunch invitations knowing that like that brunch is going on a credit card because I didn't have a job at the time. So I think that is so, so true. So I just also wanted to get your experience. And I know you talked a little bit about it in your first book, um, but your own money education growing up, like what was your experience with money? And I know you are very comfortable with having awkward conversations. So how did you even get to that place to have those awkward financial conversations? You know, what's interesting is that so much of all of our emotional relationships from money is rooted in childhood, for better or worse. Stats vary a little bit, but generally between the ages of about seven and 10, our relationship to money is getting coded, Mm. which means that your parents or whomever is raising you is the one that's really signaling what money means, what money is, and how you should feel about it. So if your parents have scarcity mentality, you're probably going to have it. If your parents are fighters about money, that's probably going to manifest for some way, either with you really avoiding it because you feel like it's toxic or you being like Mm -hmm. super, super in control because you never want to feel that way. Mm -hmm. In my household, I was very fortunate that my parents were pretty much totally aligned with their financial ideologies. They're both fairly frugal people. So there wasn't a lot of strife between the two of them, A. And then B, they talked about it. They very openly talked about money Mm -hmm. with each other, with us, not in a way there's a term called financial enmeshment that financial therapists and psychologists use to explain when like a parent will overshare and bring a child into family financial stress. That's not ever what you should do, but you should also like clue your kids in about what's going on. So a barrier being, let's say mom loses her job. So things are going to be a little tighter on the house for a little bit. You can say, okay, mom lost her job. Don't worry. We're going to be okay. But we need you to pitch in like turning off the lights when you leave your room. So it saves on our electricity bill, an appropriate way to talk to a child about it. And not like, oh my God, we can't pay the mortgage. We're going to get kicked out. You like, you don't understand. We're in so much trouble. Like that's oversharing mm-hmm. with a kid. Mm-hmm. That would be a financial enmeshment. My parents did a lot of like very hands-on lessons about how to handle money. The one that I opened the book with is a Krispy Kreme donut story. I wasn't given a like willy-nilly money to spend as a kid. If I wanted to buy something, I had to figure out how to earn. The trope was usually at least 50%, if not the whole amount, mm-hmm. to buy it. So when I was seven and had very few employment opportunities, I devised this plan to sell Krispy Kreme donuts at my mom's yard sale. I sell out. My dad comes over. I'm super proud. I have $20. My dad's like, well, I bought the donuts for you. That cost $8. Your sister worked with you for a little bit. You're going to give her $2. So your net profit is 10. And then he did take the money. Mm -hmm. Like didn't just tell me he took it. He took it. And those kind of like very hands-on lessons about how money worked started to explain to me like what money represented, what money was. Mm -hmm. And then that played out in my adulthood life in a couple of ways where my first year living in New York, I earned $23,000 approximately. And, you know, wasn't feeling great. It 
is New York City and that's not a ton of money, but mm-hmm. I did feel very much in control. Like I understood how to budget, how to live within my means, which did include like taking home all of the leftovers from the coffee house that I worked at <laughs> and like all no. that kind of stuff. <laughs> there was definitely a lot of like rice and eggs going on in my household, mm-hmm. but I felt like I understood it. I could live within my means. I could be in control especially as just like me party of one and with no dependence. And it was at that time of my life that I started to really notice how stressful money was for people around me. And I say that not in a flippant way. I say that as uh, what you grow up around is normal. So you just kind of assume that like that's everybody else's lived experience. Mm-hmm. And particularly that I started noticing people whose parents were still supporting them or I knew came from a good amount of money were also stressed about money, that to me was very curious. Like if you come from privilege, why are you so stressed Mm -hmm. about finances? Right. Mm -hmm. And that's what kind of was like a ding, ding light bulb moment for me that people don't talk about money. People don't understand how it works. So therefore it's a stressor for them. Mm -hmm. And that's really what inspired all of this Mm -hmm. to start. So how did you even have the, the confidence to kind of approach those conversations? Because it, it may not have felt awkward on your end since you did grow up in that, you know, where finances were talked about and it wasn't like a shameful thing or a guilty thing. But when you are interacting like with a friend, like how did you approach that subject with them or did they just feel comfortable to like open up to you? I think it was a mix, a bit of both. I mean, now that I write professionally about money, a lot of people feel very comfortable talking to me about money. So right. that's a bit of a different scenario. But prior to starting Broke Millennial, I think it's that we all are having money conversations without actually acknowledging that they're money conversations. So the story that inspired Broke Millennial, like really planted the seed for all of this was that I was out, I'd been out to drinks with a friend of mine. We were in our early twenties, we're about 23 years old. We had met working a job we had that was in entertainment. We had since gone on to like quote unquote professional jobs. But she still really wanted to be an actress. That was the big dream. But she was working as an executive assistant at a major, major media company and just hated it. And also, it didn't provide the flexibility to go out on auditions and do that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so she was complaining about the work scenario. And I said, you know, I don't really understand why you're not trying, at least for a year, to go be an actress. You can get you know, a waitressing job, a nanny job, like whatever you need to do to make ends meet, but then also have a level of flexibility in your schedule. And that's when she looked at me and she goes, well, I don't know. Money just really stresses me out. All I do is hope I have enough at the end of the month. Mm. And that was a big, like, oh my God, Mm -hmm. moment to me. And so that was a conversation that fundamentally was about money all the way through, but we didn't really acknowledge it until the very end when she brought it up. And people are having those conversations all the time. Like a friend of mine with family planning, for instance, she has a kid already. He's four. They're waiting to have their second until he goes to kindergarten. So they don't have to pay for two daycares. That's Mm -hmm. a money conversation. Mm -hmm. Like it sounds like you're talking about family planning or what Mm -hmm. have you. But at the end of the day, that's about money. Mm -hmm. You know, people moving to different areas. Um, all there's like all this kind of, and I hate to say it like this, but like coded messaging and how friends are talking to us about different things. 
that really the through line is money. So a lot of the time with these conversations, it's not that you have to bring up finances specifically unless you're directly asked. You can talk about whatever the greater topic is to kind of nudge it towards a money conversation. Mm -hmm. And to me, the best way to do this, no matter if it's your partner, your parents, your siblings, your friends, goals and focusing on your goals is one of the best ways to engage this conversation. Mm. So, you know, what do you want to achieve in five years? What do you want to achieve in the next year? Like anything like that, that gets people to reframe around something they want, as opposed to just like the specifics of, I want X amount is a really helpful way to talk about it. Okay. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that. That's really good. So let's jump into your book now. So we're going to take a look at, cause we kind of already touched on friendships. So how should we navigate those relationships? I remember reading in your first book of how um, you have the, I think you said the stingy Stellas and the yeah. <laughs> Can you explain that uh, to everyone who hasn't uh, read that example in your book? You're going to find, and uh, friendships is like a whole other realm in my third book, but you'll find as you age that you'll have friends that fall into either wanting to spend money that either they may have or may not have, Mm -hmm. and you don't necessarily want to try to keep up, but that keeps setting the tone for what your social activities are, whether it's, you know, going out to the brunches Mm -hmm. or taking a certain type of trip all of that. And then on the flip side, you'll also have friends who either never want to spend money, which can get frustrating to you, mm-hmm. or they do those really annoying things like, hey, we're going out. They put in what they think they owe, but they put in like the exact dollar amount that was on the menu for their item, not including like tax and tip. We've mm-hmm. all got friends like that. Yes. Absolutely. He's like, yeah, we might have like the <laughs> two for 10 at Applebee's or whatever, but that doesn't mean you owe $10. You probably mm-hmm. owe like $16 between tax and tip. So exactly. come on. <laughs> <laughs> so things like that, I think are really important to navigate. The other thing though it's really hard as you age to recognize that you're not likely to stay in the same socioeconomic dynamic as the friends, particularly that you had from college and even the friends that you make in your early twenties. That's a byproduct of a couple of things. One, it could be family money. Two, it could be, you know, they're an investment banker and you're a public school teacher. Y'all are not going to be making the same amount of money. Mm Mm-hmm. Or it could be that people are just doing life events on a very different timelines. If your best friend got married and had a kid right out of college and you're in your early 30s and you don't have either of those things, you probably have a bit more discretionary income. So you're not necessarily doing the same events. Mm -hmm. And none of this is any sort of indictment on anybody's decisions. It's just what becomes hard is navigating this new reality particularly if you don't want to talk about money. Mm-hmm. So having to acknowledge, hey, I'm 32. I don't really want to have to sleep on a couch when we take a trip anymore. I want to be taking trips where everybody gets their own bedroom. Mm-hmm. And your friend being like, well, I don't want to pay the amount of money it would take for everybody to get their own bedroom because I'm at XYZ phase or I'm saving up for XYZ thing or I'm paying off this amount of debt. So trying to also reconcile differences in value sets. One of the kind of low-hanging fruit examples, if you will, I use in the book is, listen, when you're in college, 
everybody's drinking like the same two buck chuck and that's fine. (laughs) But now you might like that $40 bottle of wine, but it's still okay. If your friend likes that $8 bottle of Moscato, like you don't have to like the same things, but you have to be willing to have the conversations that are going to be awkward in some cases to figure out how you can kind of push through these new financial comfort zones as Dr. Brad Klontz, financial psychologist, calls it. Mm -hmm. So how has that played out in your own life when you are in a space that say you're, you know, still really good friends with someone from college and you all's salaries have changed since then? How do you even go about like sitting down and having that conversation? Because it kind of almost feel like this has to be like a sit down, like it has to be a serious conversation. How do you do it where it kind of takes the awkwardness out of it? but you are still true to how you feel, true to, you know, how much money you want to spend on a certain event or a certain outing. How would you go about that? Well, one, I don't think you have to have like a sit down therapy session type conversation about it. I mean, Mm -hmm. if you want to, great, (laughs) but it can be in little conversations that kind of culminate over time. Some of the early things that you can do particularly if you're the friend who maybe isn't interested or doesn't have the same level of discretionary income, setting boundaries such as, you know, starting with the, I love you. I want to spend time with you, Mm -hmm. insert whatever here. Mm -hmm. And then however I am, and then list your reason. Like I do think it's very powerful to tell people your why. So I'm trying to pay off at least one of my student loans by the end of this year. We're trying to save up $25,000 for a down payment on a house by next summer. Mm-hmm. We are really wanting to take a badass honeymoon. So we're going to be putting all of our extra money towards that savings account. Giving people a reason provides them context for why you're saying no. Mm. But you also don't have to just say no, period. You can say no, but, or in like improv terms, yes, and, where <laughs> you give a counter offer of, Hey, I don't want to do the $40 all you can drink brunch, but I'd love to grab a bagel and go for a walk in the park with you Mm. offering something up. Okay. Keep in mind, they're allowed to do what they wanted to do in the first place. You cannot get cranky about that, but it's really important too, that you don't just keep saying no full stop Mm -hmm. because people are also going to make up their own reasons as to why you're saying no. Like, Spoiler alert, we're all super self-centered. So Mm -hmm. if your one friend keeps (laughs) saying no to you, Mm -hmm. you're probably going to start creating this narrative of like, oh my God, they're phasing me out. They don't really like me. What what did I do? Mm -hmm. And it might not be about you at all. It's just that they don't want to spend the money. So giving your why is super powerful. A couple of other things. I would say if you really want to do something and you really want that particular friend to join you, but you know it's out of their budget, just pay for them. And they might be a little hesitant at first. There's a lot of people who are probably going to push back, but positioning it as, and I give this example, actually in my book, it's a real life thing that happened with a friend of mine. We were on like a college reunion trip. Mm -hmm. We were in Texas. And one of my friends like, we're in Texas. I want to go to a steakhouse. This is what I want to do. And you could feel half of the room be like, (laughs) everybody gets a little tint. (laughs) Yep. And then he follows up with like, and I'll pay for most of the meal where it was something that he really wanted to do and he didn't want to make it other people's problems. So he was going to subsidize the cost in order to make that happen. Mm, okay. And that's also an option. If you're willing to pay the kind of money to have your friend join you as well, 
then that's a great alternative. Somebody that I interviewed for the book gave the same example. She got really good career news. She wanted to celebrate at a particular restaurant with a particular friend. She's like, I'm going to pay for you because I want to do this. So I'm not going to make it your problem. Mm, okay. That's a good one. But I wouldn't pick up the tab all the time. That's the flip side of this is that if you're in a position where you know you have more money than a particular friend or a family member, don't keep paying the bill because that's sending them a message too that like, hey, you don't think I can afford Mm -hmm. this, which can feel bad. Mm -hmm. And on the flip side, you can get to a point where you feel like they never pay. Right. And then you have resentment about it. Yep. Mm -hmm. So it's really important to balance that out. I'll tell you a real life example. My younger sister, I would always, whenever I visited her or she visited me, I'd always want to like pick up lunch, pick up the coffees. And last year at one point, she looked at me, she goes, I make money now. Because at first, like, just out of college. I'm like, you're not making a lot. I just want to treat blah, blah, blah. Right. She's the little sister. So yep. <laughs> all those tropes. And I, little did I know it was like slowly building up over time. And she's like, this bitch doesn't have <laughs> to buy coffee. <laughs> so if, and it just yeah. ended with her being like, I can afford a coffee. Right. Like I got it. Thank you. But I got it. Yep. <laughs> so it is also critical that you kind of check in with, is this dynamic here? because we both want it? Or is this dynamic here because it's something that got set up a long time ago and maybe needs to get updated? Mm-hmm. That's a good one. I know one thing that I've experienced, um, especially now that I'm in my early 30s and I have friends that are married. So I used to be able to, you know, go to them and say like, hey, you know, what do you think about doing this trip next summer? Or, you know, doing this concert, this festival. And now what I'm starting to realize is like now, you know, they are married. So they have to go, you know, depending on their relationship, you know, go to their husband. And like, I'm kind of like waiting for him to give her an answer. Have you had that experience yet? I have, you know, I actually described that exact scenario in the book where I had a friend that we were very, very open with money talks, like mm-hmm. the kind of stuff where like we would tell each other how much we're making and how much we're saving. And we just had that kind of pattern. And she had asked me a very specific money question And I responded while like, oh, well, remind me again, like how much you guys still have left on your student loans and like what you're paying towards a couple other things. And she paused and she goes, well, I'm not really comfortable sharing that anymore because I'm married now and it's not Mm -hmm. just my information. Mm -hmm. And that is, you know, I think particularly for us as women, there's this fine line between you don't want to be answering and asking permission from like you're not answering to or asking permission from a husband to go do these things Mm -hmm. I was gonna say no shade if that's your dynamic but honestly if that's your dynamic that's a problem and Mm -hmm. I'm not gonna get into that I'm not a therapist but (laughs) you you should be equals in a relationship Mm -hmm. however there should of course particularly I'm married particularly in a marital situation there should be a check-in of like, hey, I was planning to go do this. Is that cool? Or did we have anything planned? Mm-hmm. Or which pot of money are we pulling this out from? Because mm-hmm. that's the other thing to consider is how does a married couple bank? You know, is it totally joint? So that there has to be a check-in to decide, you know, is this coming from our travel fund? Is this coming from you know, our monthly allowance, like what is this coming from to pay Mm -hmm. for it? And then, yeah, I also just have to check schedules. It sounds so tedious, Mm -hmm. but (laughs) it's true. Like 
how often do do people kind of forget like, oh yeah, my in-laws are coming to town that weekend. I kind of spaced. It wasn't on the calendar. Right. Right. Husband just reminded me Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. But when it does come to money, when you get married, your spouse has a right to have feelings about how money is being spent Mm -hmm. in the relationship. Now each couple can handle that in very different ways. Like in my house, we're predominantly joint, but we each have pay calling at an allowance. There's not a better word for it, but we (laughs) each have a sum of money that we can spend on whatever we want that goes into our individual checking accounts. Okay. So, Mm -hmm. and it's the same amount of money. We do not earn the same amount of money. I'm the breadwinner in my marriage, but we each get the same amount of money that every month Mm -hmm. it's like, whatever you want to spend it on, go spend it on. So if Mm -hmm. I wanted to go take a girl's trip, usually it would come out of, I'm setting money aside out of my monthly allowance. Okay. For that trip. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So let's Because then it doesn't disrupt the like marital ledger and like our, our couple financial goals. Mm -hmm. The flow that you've already started. So I guess to segue into that, so we touched on friendships. So to move on to like romantic relationships, how do you have those conversations? Do you think there's like a time limit or a timeline that you should have those conversations before, you know, it goes into the engagement marriage process? What's your, your thoughts on that? You 100% have got to get financially naked and achieve what I refer to as full frontal financial nudity (laughs) before you get engaged. Mm -hmm. Like no one wants that stuff coming out during the engagement process. Mm -hmm. So the cutoff that I have, that's very arbitrary is just whenever you look at the person and think like, wow, I could spend the rest of my life with you. That's the point at which you are in a serious enough headspace to start having these really in-depth money conversations. I wouldn't put a timeline on it because everybody reaches that point at various levels. For some people, mm-hmm. that might be four months in. For other people, that could be four years in. Like it right. just you don't know. Depends. So whenever you do think like, wow, I could really commit to you, that's when you need to do the full process, which is sharing everything how much you make, how much debt you have, what kind of debt you have, what's your credit score, what's your credit history. Like All the nitty gritty needs to come out. I would also share things like lifestyle expectations, financial goals, short, mm-hmm. medium, and long-term. And one of the more important things is what is your emotional relationship to money or what is your financial baggage? Mm-hmm. And I say that because it's very rare that two people that get married have the same financial script. Like most likely your parents did a number on you. Their parents did a number on them. (laughs) Sorry, parents, (laughs) but it's not the same relationship or maybe you come from different socioeconomic classes and that's Mm -hmm. causing it. Maybe it's different cultural backgrounds. So there's different expectations of how money gets spent on certain things. Mm -hmm. So many different reasons, but it's important to talk about it because ultimately there's going to be a point in time where you have a disagreement about money. Right. Having the context of why and how your partner thinks about money gives you an insight if they're reacting in a very particular way to a money disagreement or pain point. Mm -hmm. That's so true. And then also in the first book, you had touched on prenups and how to have that conversation. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like how... Do you even broach that subject without coming off? Because like you said, two people in the same relationship could have two very different viewpoints of a prenup. 
how do you even go about having that conversation? I feel like that's like an extra layer of awkwardness when you bring up prenups. Book three has a lot about prenups. <laughs> I'm very vocal about them. I have one. I think they're a great idea. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there are people listening. They're like, oh my gosh, because that's usually the response when I say the P word. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of things. One, there's a few different ways to approach it. You know your partner. One is to not even say the word. Is mm-hmm. to just ask a question like, when we get married, how do you think we should handle the assets or the debt that we're bringing into the marriage. If something were to happen and we weren't married anymore, if you don't want to say the D word, Mm -hmm. what do you think is fair on how to handle that money that we've brought into the marriage? Now, if you're getting married really young and neither of you have any assets and neither of you are going to inherit any family money, eh, you might not care so much about getting a prenup. Mm -hmm. But if you're getting married at any point in your life where you have amassed something, even a modest amount. And that includes a retirement plan. Retirement plans tend to get gutted in a divorce. Absolutely. So it is important to also protect those. I would look into it. The other kind of quote unquote, like logical arguments, because people are going to come to this from an emotional space, because usually when you say prenup, the code is divorce. Right. Right. Like talking about divorce, like, why are you bothering getting married? If you're already thinking about a divorce. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, no one wants to talk about worst case scenarios, but we have life insurance, we have auto insurance, we have homeowners insurance because bad things can happen. Absolutely. So you're not getting it because you're going to manifest it. You're going to will it. Nothing is going to change because you have it. The other argument I like to make, other than like, it's basically an insurance policy on your marriage. As my attorney said to me, everyone actually has a prenup. It's just the default law of your state. Mm-hmm. So you need to know what your state thinks is fair in a divorce. And if you and your fiance don't feel like that is fair, you need to have a prenup that outlines within the realm of legality mm-hmm. how you would want assets divided in the case of a split. Okay. The other thing that I think is great about prenups is that you have to talk about everything. Mm -hmm. There are so many questions, so much nitty gritty stuff that comes out, even a couple hypothetical scenarios. I tell you, you learn more about your partner going through that prenup process truly than probably anything else you're doing. And you might go to premarital counseling, whether that's a religious thing or not. This is sort of like the financial version of that. Mm -hmm. If it's done in a healthy way, you should never be having to sign one under duress. No one should bring it up like the week before a wedding. This mm-hmm. should be something that is like a very early on conversation and process mm-hmm. because you want time. You want time to work it out. You want time to make sure everything is fair. But I love that if you go through the process, you have such an in-depth look at the overall financial picture and what stronger way to go into a marriage than having that foundation of knowing exactly everything. Mm-hmm. And my really like final soapbox thing about a prenup, I get that for people who feel that marriage is just love and trust. And if you don't have that, why bother? Right. Agreed. You need that as a foundation to your marriage. But at the end of the day, this is also basically a merger. Mm -hmm. And you're signing a legally binding contract that requires you to go to court to dissolve the partnership. Mm -hmm. Why would you ever sign a contract without knowing the terms and conditions? Exactly. 
And I mean, a lot of us click on them when we download things. I get it. But come on, like you're not going to sign your employment agreement, a business contract without knowing the repercussions. Mm -hmm. This makes sure that you understand everything that would happen if you were to dissolve the partnership. Mm -hmm. And finally, you may truly in your heart and gut believe I would never leave my partner. No matter what happens, I will always stick it out. Mm -hmm. You can't control what your partner will do. You have no control over another human being. Mm -hmm. So also that's an important part to remember. Mm -hmm. That's so true. And then when you said merger earlier, that made me think of like when you are coming into a marriage, like you are signing on to that person's debt, whatever they have, you know, accumulated up to that point. So whether it be student loans or credit card debt, how can we go about even having those conversations? So say in my case, I'm debt free now and I, you know, worked my butt off to pay off my debt, but down the line, the person that I marry has debt. How do you even have that conversation about like, I'm now taking on your debt in this marriage? Yep. Which is my scenario. I was debt free as well. My husband had a little over $50,000 of student loan debt. Okay. which I knew about years before we were even engaged. Mm -hmm. I don't think debt in of itself ever needs to be a deal breaker. I think the creation of it is the question. Like, why do you have it? How recent is it? Have behaviors changed? Mm -hmm. And that's the red flag. Like if behaviors aren't changing and they keep running up a huge credit card bill, that's going to be a long-term problem. If they had a medical crisis that got financed on a credit card and they're still paying it off, okay, we're cool. So that's thing one. Two, first, I think it's important to know the legalities of assuming someone's debt. Just because you get married does not make you immediately responsible for that person's debt unless you co-sign on it. So like if you refinance the student loans and you refinance them and you co-signed on it, Mm -hmm. now it's your problem. Different states are going to vary on if your spouse were to die, there could be different ways of how that person's estate was settled. And then, yes, you might be having to like pay it off in that sense. But from a pure legal perspective, typically you are not assuming their debt upon marriage unless you sign for that debt. Okay. But debt that they create in the marriage, that could become yours. Mm-hmm. Depends on the laws of your state, which is mm-hmm. why it's important to know. And in terms of talking about it, one thing I think that you have to also be compassionate towards and sympathetic to is this ownership mentality that your partner might have and Mm -hmm. guilt that they might feel about you're debt free. I'm bringing this in. It's a burden, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. I want to take care of it. It's my responsibility. I don't want you to touch it. Very high odds that you're probably going to face that at some point. Mm -hmm. So if you do want to help your partner or your spouse rather post-marriage aggressively pay off a debt, I think it's important to reframe like, hey, this might have been something that got created before we got married, but we're married now. We're a team now. We're trying to achieve these goals on this kind of a timeline. And this is standing in our way. So I want us to work together to pay it off. If that's how you feel, maybe you don't. Maybe you totally silo your finances and that's on them Mm -hmm. and your situation's on you. Everybody Mm -hmm. handles it a little bit differently. But I can tell you from experience of my own situation, it feels really good to pay it off and to work together to do that. And I do think that can be a really bonding experience. 
And if you're nervous about it because you've read too many articles where people are like, I paid off his loans and then he divorced me, <laughs> get a prenup and have it accounted for. Have it in me. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's so true. I never thought about it like that, but I'm glad you, you made that point clear. Cause in my mind, I thought, you know, once you sign the marriage license, like you're also signing on to their debt. So that's good. I'm glad that you made that distinction that it's only if you co-sign on their debt that then you are held legally responsible for it. Now, if they're creating debt in the marriage, Mm -hmm. you could be responsible for that. But what gets brought in typically remains theirs. Okay. Okay. So before we, so we touched on friends, we touched on romantic relationships. I just want to touch on family also real quick, especially now because of the holidays. I feel like a lot of people are having these conversations, you know, what should we get mom and dad for Christmas? I know I personally just went through this with my brother and his wife. And like, we usually do like a joint gift for my mom and, you know, they are a two income household and I'm by myself. So certain gift ideas that they have compared to what I can afford, it does make the conversation kind of weird. And especially since they know I'm debt free, I think they assume like, I just have this, you know, massive cash in my closet. So how can we navigate those conversations with family? So they're not tense or awkward, especially during the holidays and Christmas and all of that. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, sometimes it's going to be tense and awkward. Mm -hmm. I, unfortunately, you can't always remove that. Mm -hmm. And I do think just setting financial boundaries, like, Hey, I have $50 to put towards a joint present. If you guys want to get something that's worth more than that, that's fine. But I can only contribute $50. I think that it's also important, particularly as we age and sibling dynamics, for instance, it doesn't, being fair doesn't necessarily mean a 50-50 split, Mm. right? Because people Mm -hmm. are in different positions. As you mentioned, you have one income. They're a household of two incomes. So maybe that makes a big difference. Or maybe in their mind, it's like, okay, but now we also have to be buying presents for all of her family in addition to our family. So that's more. So it's important to have that kind of a conversation. And also acknowledging Like, this is what I can afford. If you want to only go 50-50, then it needs to be $100 max, each party putting in 50. But if you want to prorate based on salary, based on Mm -hmm. scenarios, Mm -hmm. that's okay too. It's, It's really interesting to me too with family gift giving that what can also get hard, particularly as you like marry in and expand families, Children, uh, like the children, so your siblings, mm-hmm. you're not all going to be in the same scenario. So gifting two parents, one might be over here showboating, dropping like a crap ton of money. Mm-hmm. And the other one's like, here's a $25 present because that's <laughs> what I can afford. Mm-hmm. So it, it is important to make sure that it doesn't come down to amount of money spent. It's coming down to also like thoughtfulness. Is it also time spent? I feel like my parents are in a scenario where like they can buy themselves what they want. They don't need us to buy them anything. Exactly. Mm -hmm. They don't live near either of us. So time, like quality time is one of the better things that we can give them. Mm -hmm. And trying to reframe that a little bit as we age and come into different scenarios where it's not always about the price tag on the gift that we're giving. It's also about, are we making memories? Are we spending quality time? Mm-hmm. You know, or maybe it's a scenario where like your parents can't buy themselves whatever they want. You just want to spoil them a little bit and that's okay. And if you're the sibling 
who can afford to do that. I do think it's important though, to also talk to everyone else and be like, we're going to buy them a TV for Christmas. Mm -hmm. You guys don't have to chip in on it, but I also didn't want to like tell you Christmas morning right. Blindside you. for everybody. <laughs> exactly. Be like here, mom, here's your socks. Here, right. mom, here's your TV. <laughs> Somebody's going home feeling upset exactly. and it's not mom. So <laughs> I do think it is really critical though, to have those upfront, honest conversations. It sounds so corny, but like speak your truth to it. Mm-hmm. If you're the siblings who maybe don't live near mom and this is also a way that, you know, if gift giving is your love language, I hear you. I see you. I am one of you. Mm -hmm. So then, yeah, sometimes it's about like, that's how you want to show some of your love and affection is by buying something nice for them. Mm -hmm. And you're allowed to do that, but you need to be honest with your siblings. If you're going to go drop a grand and they're spending $25, that also needs to be a conversation. (laughs) Totally. Totally. That's so true. And then on the flip side of that, you talk about in your first book, like having those conversations with your parents. So as we're aging, of course, our parents are aging and it kind of seems like the dynamics kind of almost shift, like having those conversations with your parent, like how is retirement looking for you or, you know, how, you know, your later life, how would they want to be taken care of that type of like, how do you even go about having that conversation? Especially yeah, if you're like the financially like sensible one in your family, like the financially sensible sibling. Yep. That is a super big stressor for mm-hmm. a lot of people, particularly for us as the millennial generation. I do think a lot of us are going to be our parents' retirement plans, whether or not you know it. And so then the key <laughs> becomes like finding out early so you can make the appropriate plans. Exactly. And a lot of parents are not going to tell you outright that that's the situation. Probably not because they're trying to be withholding, but maybe they think that they can reverse it mm-hmm. and that they can fix it. Mm-hmm. So a couple of things. Again, the third book, this is a huge section of okay. the third book in the family chapter because it's not only about how to talk to your parents about it. It is also about how to talk to siblings if you have siblings. Mm-hmm. You also might be an only child trying to deal with this. Particularly, one of the women I interviewed is the only child of a single mother. So like, that's an even more intense bond. hmm When it comes to asking your parents, you can try being direct. Are you guys financially prepared to retire? (laughs) I'm going to guess that that has a success rate of about 15%, if that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Because a lot of parents are going to say, don't worry about it or it's none of your business. Mm -hmm. Because what's starting to happen, as you kind of alluded to, you're disrupting the parent-child paradigm by kind of trying to parent your parents. Mm -hmm. And most parents do not respond well. To that. that. Exactly. So then one of the best strategies is the classic, ask your parents for their advice because parents love giving advice. Mm -hmm. So as long as it sounds authentic to you, things like, hey, I started a new job. I have a 401k. I'm not quite sure how to handle it. What did you guys do? Mm, Okay. Now, if you know your parents have never had a job that offered any sort of benefits like that, and they know that you're super into finance, they're going to be like, like, where do you go What's happening? <laughs> yeah. What's going on? <laughs> so pivot, find versions that are authentic to the relationship that you have. Mm-hmm. Hey, I just got married and we're talking about creating our will. What did you guys do for creating your will? What lawyer did you guys use? Mm-hmm. And I feel like we don't have a will. Ding, ding, ding. That's clue one that estate planning needs to happen for your parents. Okay. 
hey, Jackie's mom and dad just retired and moved out to Colorado. What are you guys thinking about doing when you retire? What kind of lifestyle do you guys want to have? Mm-hmm. That's just a pretty general conversation where it's not too pushy to just mm-hmm. be like, what are you guys thinking next phase? Like that seems pretty reasonable. Right. You also might get a flippant comment like, Shh, we're never going to be able to afford to retire. Mm-hmm. Ding, okay. ding, ding. <laughs> That's, That's awesome. Insights. Right. Um, any little things like that. I, you know, also situations like, Hey, my best friend's dad just died. He had gotten remarried. He hadn't updated his will. The whole family's fighting. It's such a mess. I just was curious. Do you guys have a will? Do you guys have power of attorneys? Do you guys Mm -hmm. have advanced healthcare directives? Like you can ask really specifically about that kind of stuff. And if they will not engage, I think also coming from the place of like, I really need to talk to you guys about this because if you don't have these things in place, I legally cannot help you if something goes wrong. Or I want to make sure you're in a position where I am doing what you want and I'm not trying to guess. Mm -hmm. Or... I don't want to be in grief because something has happened to you. And then also trying to figure out all the details of like how to pay the mortgage, how to, you know, what if mom's in a coma and she Mm -hmm. doesn't have anything set up to auto pay and Mm -hmm. you're not power of attorney. You can't just go into her bank and be like, Hey, I have to pay this bill. Right. Show us power of attorney. Exactly. There's a lot that needs to happen. You can also from a kind of a final pivot And I don't mean for this to be a scare tactic, but it kind of is, particularly if you have a family history of like Alzheimer's, dementia, anything Mm -hmm. like that, that is Mm -hmm. hereditary. Saying things like, hey, we know that this is a family history and it really is important to me that we have all of the legal paperwork in place so that if this were to happen, we can immediately leap right into care and not be trying to figure out the legal side. Mm -hmm. And I think like even now with us being in the midst of this pandemic is even easier, I would say, maybe not Mm -hmm. easier, but more, more prevalent, more relevant to have this conversation because there are a lot of, you know, elderly, our grandparents, our parents even that could be affected with COVID and just knowing, you know, having that conversation like mom or mom or dad, you know, if God forbid you had to go to the hospital and I'm having to talk to you, you know, via FaceTime with the nurse, like just having those things in place. So I think it's a a better time to even have this conversation and have those documents in order. It is. And, you know, if you have siblings, you also do want to be having this conversation with them. You guys all might've gotten different insights at different points and kind of trying to compile together what you all know, or maybe you're in a situation where it's like, listen, mom and dad don't have anything We know they don't have anything. We're going to have to care for them as they age. So we need to be planning right now how and what that's going to look like. Right. Right. And it's also an important thing to bring up with a spouse if you're married, like Mm -hmm. talking about whether it's cultural expectations, family expectations, your own sense of self-imposed expectations of Mm -hmm. what it's going to look like. You have to clue in your spouse as well. It can't just be like, Hey, I decided we have to move to Cincinnati because mom's sick. <laughs> right. And you're like, I'm sorry, what? So <laughs> like that could be is, you all. <laughs> yeah, it is really, really important that all parties are clued into these chats as well. Mm-hmm. And on that note, another option is if you either your spouse or a sibling's spouse is very close to your parents. 
they could also be the person you send in to initiate some of this conversation. Mm. And that might sound a little strange, mm-hmm. but I say that because in some cases it's easier for the parent to talk to an in-law if they have a good, healthy dynamic, mm-hmm. because it's someone they love and trust, but fundamentally is not their child. Right. It has nothing to do with bloodline and everything to do with they're not the person that raised you. Mm-hmm. So even though like my father-in-law calls me his daughter and it's very endearing, he can more easily talk to me about certain things than he could his own actual daughter mm-hmm. because it's not the same like mortality projection mm-hmm. and pain point. And I can just be more of the like pragmatic sounding board person in this conversation. Mm-hmm. So that is another possible person, or maybe, you know, it's a religious figure, a community leader, an aunt and uncle, or even just asking your the doctor, you know, the doctor can't tell you, you could be like, Hey, I'm a little worried about my mom's memory loss. Could you please encourage her to get tested mm-hmm. for dementia or whatever it is? Okay. That's a good point. So before I let you go, I just really want to touch on one last thing, salary negotiation and having those type of conversations, whether it be with our colleagues and um, or our supervisors, how can we go about having that type of conversation? Some quick hit negotiation tips. One of the first things that I actually kind of had like a mind blowing moment was how much are you willing to pay to avoid an awkward conversation was Mm -hmm. what one of the negotiation experts I interviewed said to me, Mm -hmm. talk about a mental reframe on what that is. (laughs) So how much are you willing to pay to avoid an awkward conversation? Mm -hmm. And also to extrapolate on that, how much is that going to add up to over the course of your career? Like how many possibly tens of thousands of dollars are you leaving? The other thing though, too, is to really think of talking particularly to coworkers as like sourcing information. And if you're in an environment where it's not, it doesn't feel safe to talk to your coworkers, use LinkedIn, use any of those kind of tools to be like, hey, here's my scenario. I'm looking to get a raise. I was wondering if you could tell me, do you make over or under X? Mm, and just okay. cold pitch people on a place like LinkedIn make sure that you're controlling for like similar size company, similar area, Mm -hmm. particularly if you're a woman, it's also important to ask both men and women to control for a gender wage gap. If you're a woman of color or Mm -hmm. a man of color, really a person of color in general, it's important that you are asking also like white people and people of color to control for the racial wage gap in the responses that you're getting. And on LinkedIn, just like email a crap ton of people because Mm -hmm. you might only hear back from a handful. But ideally, it's nice to hear back from like three men and three women to get just a better sense of information. And one of the other, like two other like actual negotiating tips that I really liked from the experts I spoke with. One was making sure that you're asking for constructive criticism like months ahead of when Mm. your performance review is. I think sometimes people make the mistake of like, it's performance review time. I'm going to go in and ask for a raise. Mm -hmm. Problem is a lot of times the budgets have already been set. Raises have already been decided. So you're too late to ask. Mm -hmm. So instead you need to ask for the raise prior to that performance review. Okay. Usually the advice was like at least three months out, have a conversation. And the way you can hedge it is, you know, they know what you've done. You don't necessarily have to go in with all this data. You can, if it makes you feel good, but also talking about 
you know, I would like to have a conversation about compensation. Mm -hmm. I am trying to get a raise this year. What do I need to be doing in order to make that happen? Okay. Asking for constructive criticism is a really good way to then like demonstrate that you have earned it. Mm -hmm. And the final thing, I really love the language that somebody offered. Um, Alexandra Dickinson, negotiation expert said, use, I would like, Mm, so it's not, I want, because that's kind of can sound demanding. It's Mm. not, I think, because that's a bit wishy-washy. It's just Mm -hmm. straight down the middle. I would would like like a $5,000 raise. Mm -hmm. I would like more responsibilities. And she also talks about how you should start using that in everyday life. Okay. And she jokes that she would ask her husband, I would like you to take out the trash. (laughs) And then on top of that, to remember that silence is very powerful. Like people Mm -hmm. hate it being quiet. Mm -hmm. So there's that old adage of like, don't start talking. Don't be the first to talk in a negotiation. You'll lose. Mm -hmm. All of the experts kind of chuckled when I brought that up. Cause like, if you're asking for a raise, you have to make the ask. Right. (laughs) Sorry. You have to to come out your mouth. (laughs) Yeah. But what you should do is shut up because sometimes you'll say, I would like a $10,000 raise. And then you might wait half a second and be like, but you know, like whatever you can afford to do, I would really appreciate you start to undercut yourself. Mm -hmm. So let the silence hang. The advice was like five seconds, like at least try to last five seconds if they don't respond. Because then usually somebody gets uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And that's another one that you can practice in day-to-day life. It's like, hey, I got a roommate. I put a piece of chocolate cake in the fridge. I came back to get it later. Chocolate cake is gone. Call the roommates to the fridge. I had chocolate cake in here. Where did it go? Silence. Pause. (laughs) And just wait a nice pregnant pause. (laughs) Yep. So really also focusing on like silence is a really powerful tool. Okay. And that practice this kind of stuff in day-to-day life. Like whether Mm -hmm. it's, you know, going to your favorite coffee shop at the end of the day, ordering a latte and saying like, hey, you're probably going to throw those croissants out could I have one for free? Mm. And they may be like, no. All right. So you don't get it for free. Or maybe it's like, could I have it 50% off since it's the end of the day? Mm-hmm. Just little things to just make this feel a bit more natural. Cause it's not necessarily a natural thing for us to do. Okay. That's a good one. I know one way that I've personally practiced is like calling like my cable or internet provider every year. Like, Hey, I've been a customer for an additional year you know, what promotions are you running that, you know, I could apply for. So yeah, definitely takes some time because I'm always like, I feel like an idiot for doing it. But then a lot of times, you know, you, you will get a promotion or they'll knock something off or, you know, they gave me Hulu for free for two years. So it's just asking. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you know, there is the, the worst they can say is no thought process. You also want to make sure that like your ask is reasonable, you know, (laughs) (laughs) ridiculous Mm -hmm. because there's a fine line. And that's important. So true. So true. So before I let you go, Erin, thank you so much for all the information that you shared. But I always like to just do a quick rapid fire round. So these questions are pretty light in nature. So nothing serious. Are you ready? Let's do it. Okay. So the first question is, what is your or what was your biggest money regret thus far? Oh, this is actually pretty easy. My biggest money regret was not investing into my friendships in my early 20s. Mm. And so funnily enough, it was not spending money was my big money regret. I would say no to things all the time. And people stop asking if you keep saying no. And yes. I would say no without any sort of context as mm-hmm. well. So I do think it is really important not to overinvest, 
but to make sure that there is also an element of not just fixating on money and saving and earning and also building relationships as well. Excellent. That's a good one. Um, what was your favorite childhood toy? Oh, that's hard. <laughs> no, it's a loaded this is, one. <laughs> is this so nerdy? I just love to read. So I feel mm-hmm. like books, but I'm trying to think of being like a really little kid. I mean, the Barbie Jeep was pretty clutch. Yes. Yes. That was a, that was a big one. Also just my bike. Cause you had so much more autonomy once you got a bike, if you go so many places, mm-hmm. so I'd say that too. Okay. That's a good one. My mom, like, so we have two like hedges on the, each side of our house. So she's like, you can bike from one hedge to the other. So I had like a very limited <laughs> amount of space <laughs> that I could go. <laughs> so the next question is if you did not live in New York, where would you want to live? Mm-hmm. So probably Asheville, North Carolina mm-hmm. currently, just mm-hmm. because I swing very drastically between I want to be in the proper city or I want to like be in a cabin in the mountains in the middle of nowhere where I yeah, can see no one. <laughs> Given the state of 2020, I'm going to go with the mountain house being yes. my secondary location right now. Okay. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Asheville is beautiful. So the last question that I'm asking all of my guests is what are you looking forward to the most in 2021? Hopefully some level of normalcy, which is also probably what everyone is saying. Mm-hmm. And also in 2021, I'm actually planning to take a little bit of a sabbatical. And okay. I've written three books in four years. I have been doing, you know, Broke Millennial. I'm kind of having like the seven-year itch mm-hmm. on doing that. So I'm going to take a little time off and just kind of explore some other areas of interest and see what else kind of lights me up and sounds fun. So I'm excited to play around in that arena and hopefully the world is a little bit more open so I can maybe take some like fun classes and stuff but yes. we'll see yes okay that's excellent I love that well thank you again Aaron, so much for joining us today so can you let everyone know where they can find you and where they can find your book Yes. So you can find me on Instagram at Broke Millennial Blog, on Twitter at Broke Millennial. The website is BrokeMillennial.com. And you can also get any of my books wherever books are sold. I will also say if you order Broke Millennial Talks Money and send me an email at team at BrokeMillennial.com by March 1st of 2021, I will send you some fun goodies, including the Are You Your Parents Retirement Plan Checklist Mm. and a prenup discussion guide. Two big ones. (laughs) I think we all need both of those. So that's excellent. So I'll make sure to put all of that information in the episode description and all of your links there as well. So thank you again, Erin. And I hope you have a good one. Thanks. You too. Thanks. There you have it, guys. This is the first episode of 2021 and it's in the book. So thank you so much for listening. I also want to say thank you again to Erin for joining us today. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, this truly was such a surreal experience to have the opportunity to interview her when I can remember so vividly reading her books on my lunch break when I was working part-time at Barnes & Noble. So now to be in this position two years later and having her on my podcast was, like I said, such a like surreal experience. And just to kind of piggyback off that note, I want to take this opportunity to really just encourage you to send that email or do whatever's been on your list 
that scares you to just go ahead and do it because that is exactly how this interview came to be. I reached out to her. I told her how much um, her book impacted me, especially when I was at the beginning of my debt-free journey and that I would love to have her on the show to talk about her newest book. And she said, yes, of course. And I was so scared to send that email. I was twice as scared when she confirmed and said yes and agreed to be on the podcast. But I just really want to encourage you, if there's something that you've been wanting to do, an email that you've been meaning to send or someone that you wanted to reach out to, whether it's in mentorship or whatever it may be to help you along your journey, just send the email, send the note, send the DM and, you know, just pray for the best. So I just want to encourage you all with that. I'm so grateful that you took time to listen to this episode. And before I go, I also want to let you know that I am giving away a free copy of Aaron's newest book, Broke Millennial Talks Money, Scripts, Stories, and Advice to Navigate Awkward Financial Conversations. So if you are interested in winning a copy of her newest book, definitely make sure to follow us on Instagram at The Financial Key. All of the details are there and how to enter as well as when I will announce the winner. And that is all I have for you all today. And I'll see you. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode. But there's one more key I want to leave with you before you go. Did you know that this podcast is a success because of you? Yes, you. When you engage and share an episode, it helps others just like you find this podcast. So if you haven't already, please subscribe And if you have an extra minute, I would love it if you could leave a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you soon. Same time, same place.